last part. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this incredible privilege and this honor of gathering together as family. Thank you for keeping these doors open, Father, to this church. We know that it's not about the building, but the fellowship, Father, with you by means of your Son. Father, thank you for evenings like this, times that we're able to just sit back and relax and fellowship with you and each other in the unity that you provided from eternity past, Father. Thank you so much. We pray for those that are ill in our congregation that can't be here with us this evening. And we pray also for those that are still lost, of course, that we might evangelize them before it's too late. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality for all of us to enjoy. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, deceitfulness of sin, part 67. A wonderful principle came from the pulpit at the tail end of Tuesday's message. Uh, in summary, the Spirit reminded us all that sanctification is a work of God alone. And I think we just have to remember that. And that's what the Spirit's basically saying. Uh, remember, this is sort of the sister content or the sister series to the Gospel Reload. I know that um, that umbrella term really has uh, multiple uh, series in view. But nonetheless, this is sort of the sister to all of those. Um, in summary, the Spirit reminded us that... Um, Sanctification is a work of God alone. And in this work, it has become blatantly obvious through the diligent study of the Word of God that the experiential uh, aspects of sanctification, and just, you know, I was thinking about that. We often think of three, but when you think of experiential aspects of sanctification, that's from man's perspective. Just remember that. that uh, from God's perspective, He sees it as one big sort of effort of his own, one contiguous, uh, one solid, unified viewpoint. Remember the parade an uh, analogy? He sees the entire parade. We only look through a window and as we see life passing us by. Uh, so when we talk about experiential sanctification, we're looking through that window as life goes by. God sees the beginning from the end and vice versa. So anyways... Uh, it becomes blatantly obvious through the diligent study of the Word of God that the experiential aspects of sanctification are predicated on the basic concept of learning. And that's what you're doing here this evening. We learn, and we continue to learn, and we have to be lifelong learners. Um, Satan and the kingdom of darkness are going to do everything they can to dissuade us and to discourage us from this one basic principle. Um, that's why if, if nothing else, uh, just get here. And if you can't get here because you're sick or what have you, get the lessons, get the messages, stay in tune with what the Spirit's saying to the church. And so the experiential aspects of sanctification are predicated on the basic concept of learning. I was thinking about something I once heard and I don't give him any credence for this. It's just using it as a sort of a, a, 
launching pad this evening. I was thinking about something I once heard uh, Warren Buffett say, and he's like one of the uh, most wealthiest people on the planet, intelligent man, obviously. Uh, he's older, very, very much older now, and just looking back, people ask him, you know, what advice do you give young people today? And he said, I only have really two things that I tell everyone. Avoid all debt at all costs. Avoid getting into debt. Number two, invest in your mind, for no one can ever take that investment away from you. Avoid all debt. Invest in your mind. And really, honestly, I know it's a worldly uh, individual, as far as I know, making those statements. He could be a Christian. I'm not sure. Um, I couldn't agree more, honestly. It's very sound advice. Um, the prior uh, places you into bondage if you're stuck in debt, places you into bondage while the latter provides freedom. So let's compare this wisdom to the wisdom of God. Go to Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 again. Avoid all debt, invest in your mind or your education. And I couldn't agree more. It's very sound wisdom. Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Uh, think of it this way. We are born in debt with a debt that we cannot pay. The wages of sin is a debt. <laughs> what did we just think about? Avoid all debt. And so the idea is to get out from underneath this thing somehow, some way. For the wages of sin is death. We are born in debt. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So by grace, God ensures we are enslaved to debt. A la Buffett's, you know, number one, avoid all debt. And so God takes care of it by grace, which is fantastic. So whatever debt you have, I've just taken care of it. And that's a wonderful thing. And it ensures that we aren't enslaved to debt because that's, the, that's what debt does. It enslaves you to it. You've heard of uh, people being house poor or car poor, depending on what debt they've taken up or both. I don't know. Uh, or nowadays it seems to be education poor. Um, you know, these people are <coughs> enslaved to debt. But thankfully, by grace... God has taken care of that debt. So he became a man and paid our debt in full, which is why we see so many passages in the New Testament cautioning us from venturing back into that bondage. The second thing that God does for us by grace is teach us. Allah, Buffett's invest in your mind and your education. What, do you, what have you realized over the past, I don't know, three, four, five years? Most of you will say, I've never been so free. This is the greatest freedom I've ever known. Well, what maybe you're not connecting is that God has been teaching you all along. And nobody can take that away from you. You could be, you know, out in the street tomorrow. But no one can take away what you know to be true about God. Go to John 14, 26. So the second thing that God does for us by grace is teach us. So in other words, 
We have an investment in our education. Compliments of him, of course. But we play a role uh, in both of these things, uh, experientially speaking anyways. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Our part in this requires humble seeking. Humble seeking. He will teach you, but you have to seek as well. Luke 11, 9, go there. Luke 11, verse 9. And so this investment into our minds, into our education, I'm thinking of Romans 12 now, uh, transforming of our minds, as you know. So he promises to teach us all things, but our part requires humble seeking. Luke 11:9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, it's the Greek word we're going to see in a moment, zeteo. Seek, and you will find, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And so you have to seek this education of yours. You have to seek um, this transformation of your mind. Jesus Christ promises us that for the person who seeks, they will indeed find. Let me give you the Greek up here on the board. Seek is from zeteo. It means to run through with the eyes any series or succession of men or things. And so to seek out, search through, make diligent search to seek in order to find. And so there's an end goal. There's a purpose, if you would. There's an investment strategy with an ROI or a return on investment that is much greater than any advice that someone like a Warren Buffett could give you. And so that's what it means to seek. And that's our, that's the component of the, uh, the equation, if you would, in terms of being experientially sanctified and then set free. Avoid the debt by grace. And then also by grace, I'm going to allow you to invest in yourself and your own spiritual well-being because I'm going to teach you if you seek for such things. In Luke 11, 9-8, the verb zeteo is in the present tense active voice, which means that it is something we do ourselves presently and or habitually, that is to invest in our own biblical education. That is our part in it, that we have to partake in our own Biblical education we have to invest. Most of you would say this evening, you've invested your time and your energy to be here. I can tell by looking at you, you're, some of you are tired. I get it. Had long uh, weeks, maybe long days. Uh, maybe you've got allergies like I do and it's just killing you uh, and it knocks you out. Uh, but nonetheless, it's an investment that you've taken. Of course, by grace, God says, Here's, here's the, 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 um, the uh, content for you, but you have to seek it. That's our part. And so 
It just doesn't happen. You know, we just don't go like this and hold the Bible up to our brain and through osmosis it happens. We have to actually come to, me- come to hear the messages so that we're guided. That's sort of the rudder in our life. And we also have to go home and read our Bibles. And this is how he promises to teach us. And so those are the two aspects I'm just using, again, as a platform. Uh, Buffett's, you know, never go into debt um, or avoid all debt uh, and invest in your education. So for the sake of illustration, do any of you have the gumption to say that you understood um, God? And I'm going to give you a passage here in a moment. That you understood the things of God, uh, of, all, of what is described of Him in Holy Scripture, on the day that you were saved? That's a question you should ask for the sake of illustration. I'll just I'll narrow it. Do any of you have the gumption to say that you understood the following passage that we're about to read of Holy Scripture on the day that you were saved? In other words, when you were saved, there's nothing else. Go to 1 John 5:18. 5, 1 John 5:18. 5, Can we say that was the end of the road, that He saved us, and that's all He was going to do? That was all He has ever meant to do in us? That there is no investment strategy? That you, sh- you are wasting your time right now, in other words? Learning? Of course not. Ask yourself this question. On the day you were saved, as a babe, an infant in Christ, could you understand 1 John 5.18? We know that no one who was born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're on part 67 of discovering such things. Part 67 on the deceitfulness of sin. Why is that applicable? Because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Where does the evil one get his power? Lies. He tells lies because he's the father of lies. And he's the God of this world. And so we have to understand our enemies. Who can possibly say, when you were dead as a doornail, didn't understand spiritually saved things, uh, praise, uh, praise things to save your life, who can possibly say, on the day and the moment that you were saved, you knew everything automatically? That's ridiculousness. We have to sort of come out of this a state that we were born into, we call that sanctification. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. That takes time. He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Who has the gumption to say you understood what John was writing about the day you were saved? Even verse 20 alone, you had really no idea. You were just grateful. You were just grateful to know that you were now saved. You didn't know really that much at all about God other than He exists and that He sent His Son to save you when you couldn't save yourself. So the answer is, I don't think anyone could make that claim. How could you? We have to learn about God once we have the God-given faculties 
to even understand spiritually appraised things. So, the Spirit not only inspired this passage, for example, but so many years later, long after you've been saved, He continues to take the time to teach you such things, to share His own wisdom through the Word of God. I really do wholeheartedly suggest at some point in your spiritual walks, hopefully soon, you get a chance to read all of 1 John. I read it recently and my mind was blown out. And I've read it I don't even know how many times. How does that happen? But He teaches us new things each and every time we read Holy Scripture because it's a supernatural phenomenon that happens. And again, thank God that He takes the time to teach us such things, to share His own wisdom through the Word of God. As we just read in verse 20, God has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Back to our opening principle, that sanctification is God's to endow man with. He's done all the work by grace, having removed the debt from our account, and then made a clear way for learning His Word in order to facilitate our own sanctification. In other words, remove the bondage aspect to set us free. Pay the debt, set us free. Teach us over day by day as we seek diligently, teaching us, sanctifying us along the way. And as I was typing this message, I had a visual. Imagine we're like, I don't mean to um, belittle anybody that happens to be in this kind of a uh, circumstance, but I'm just making an illustration. It's like we were homeless and filthy and left for dead in the streets of New York City. And along comes the wealthiest man in human history, though he's moderately dressed and without any outward appearance that the world would even esteem him. And he picks us up from the throes of certain death, heals us with ointment, and then says, you know what, I'm going to adopt you as my own and show you the ways of my royal household. And you respond, but I don't know the first thing about you. This apparent love you're expressing towards me, the unworthy. Nor do I know anything about how you run your household. And he simply responds, I'll teach you. That's what's going on. I'll teach you. I know that you don't know. I just picked you up out of the gutter. I realize this. But I love you, and I'll teach you. Agree? Amen. Religious people will say, that's a bogus story. Nobody is that giving. You must, at least in part, earn your keep. Somehow, people like this have failed to understand the nature of God. They are without excuse, according to Romans 1, of course, but nonetheless... Somehow these people have missed the mark and turned to self-righteousness instead of Christ-righteousness. Self-righteousness instead of Christ-righteousness. Salvation, as the Bible teaches, 
us is to be expected. For God is grace and love, as we've been seeing. He is also simultaneously sovereign. He is grace and love, and He is simultaneously sovereign. And so salvation, as we see in the Bible, makes total sense. And being immutable, we might think of James's words up here on the board. James 1.17 Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Arguably the most underrepresented part of a contemporary Christian's education is regarding God himself. I'm talking about individuals who may even earnestly read their Bibles or in all earnestness, you know, go to church. Uh, and, and go about their business. What I see um, is that uh, uh, many, many Christians don't spend any real time on God. I know that sounds almost weird, but I mean on Him, like the nature, the character of God, God Himself, His person, His character, etc., etc. They don't seek Him to find Him, His person. Because if you, if you read the Bible through and through and you're open, you realize that God has a personality. And it's fantastic. It's not completely absorbable, right? We can't get our arms around Him because He's too immense. But He really does have a personality. He makes you cry. He makes you laugh. He makes you rejoice. He makes you do all your emotions uh, when you read the Bible, if you're open to Him. Um, and I just think that there's a lot of people out there, sadly, that are Christians, maybe even saved people, uh, that don't spend any real time on God as a person. It almost seems like people say, oh yeah, there's a God. He exists. But that's where it ends for many people. They never spend any real time learning about Him in the Bible. Rather, they speculate or invent attributes and characteristics and then ascribe them to His good name even though they have no biblical foundation. I see an awful lot of that in Christianity. People speculate and invent attributes that, are, that aren't actually in the Bible. They say, this is how God is because this is how I imagine God to be. Well, does the Bible support that viewpoint? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I imagine He's like that, so therefore He is. And that's why crazy Christians out there are saying things like, you know, God, everybody goes to heaven because how can a, quote, loving God send anybody to the lake of fire? Why would a, quote, loving God... Uh, ordain a birth knowing that that person was going to go to hell. How can a loving... And they go on with this and they speculate about who God is and then they come to their own conclusions. I don't think that people even know who God is half the time. That's the problem. Nobody spends actually any real time learning about, well, what is, who is God? What is His nature? Is He just, just 
lopsided loving without any justice? Is he all justice without any love? There are religions on both sides of this. The latter one is local. It's all about the wrath of God to scare you into heaven, which doesn't work. <clears throat> and so people, because they don't pick up their Bibles and read, they just speculate. But there's no biblical foundation. Our first objective as believers should be to understand God. I know it sounds funny, right? But that should be our first objective. I know that's what he wants. We're going to see that in Holy Scripture here in a moment. Hence, a previous principle from Tuesday up here on the board, God's whole person, God's sovereignty, like every other facet of his character, never functions in the absence of grace. For example, for example, he never drops one part of his character while operating in another. He is who he is. Exodus 3, 14 and 15, 33, 17 and 19. Let's quickly review our reference passages again. Go to Exodus 3, 14. Exodus 3, 14. God's sovereignty, like every other facet of his character, never functions in the absence of grace. He never drops one part of his character while operating in another. He is who he is. And so it behooves us to understand who is God then? How does he function? How does a so-called Christian get so lopsided where they think everybody ultimately ends up in heaven? How, how do they do that? It's obvious they don't know God. They don't know who God is. They don't understand the likes of what we studied last week with Romans 9. Who are you, old man? I can do whatever I want. I can show mercy wherever I want to show mercy, compassion where I want to show compassion. That's, that's up to me. If you spend your time speculating and inventing about the holy God of the universe, you don't know that about him. And so you have sort of this free reign, but yet look at in Exodus 3.14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Just as if to say, hey, I'm immutable. This is, this is me. Before human history even existed, I'm the same. I am. Alpha, Omega, beginning, end. And he said, thus, you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. Any questions, in other words? Up here on the board, I am who I am. This self-given title for God refers to his self-existence and eternal nature. He is eternal life itself. He doesn't just possess it. We studied that few messages back, if you remember. He is eternal life. That's how we have to look at it when we're given it. It's not just something on a timeline. He is eternal life, or life that's eternal. And everything intrinsically good. That's what we learned. He's also love. So says the Bible. He is love. He doesn't just possess it. He literally is the sphere of love, the wellspring of love, the embodiment of love in a way that we can't even fathom, to be honest. He is. He just says, I am. <laughs> Anything good in this universe is mine, is me, originates with me. I'm the author of it. I'm the keeper of it. I'm the protector of it, which is why I throw people in the lake of fire, which is why I'm just in doing so. I'm that guy. I'm him. I am. And I don't need to explain myself to anyone. 
And I think that's the craziest thing to most American Christians. We want an explanation from every authority in our lives. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I'll follow you once I'm satisfied with your worthiness. We take that same ridiculous, crappy attitude to God, to the throne of grace. It's like spitting on the cross. Oh, that wasn't enough. Now you're going to scrutinize the holy God of the universe. If you're even saved, because that's the average attitude nowadays in America. But God sits back and says, I am. Doesn't matter what you think about the truth, it doesn't change it. That's a principle I taught a decade ago. What someone thinks about the truth never changes it. To our previous point, though, up here on the board, we're to learn about God's whole person. Now look at the second part there. He never drops one part of his character while operating in another he is who he is. Let's look at the other reference now. Go to Exodus 33, 17. 33, 17. He is what he is. I love that about him, that I don't have to guess. He doesn't have moods, you know, like people do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't know. He's looking, Scott's looking a little moody today. I'm just going to, like, leave him over there. Is that why you're over there by yourself most days? Uh, Exodus 33:17. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses, that echoes back to when Joseph said, or Jesus said, I never knew you. Remember that? I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Remember, I am. I am who I am. Oh, clay. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In other words, God states clearly that He is simultaneously sovereign in His right to choose, and gracious and Merciful, sovereign, and gracious. Matter of fact, because they were within the same sphere of who he is, they never operate independently. As a matter of fact, they are intrinsic to each other. And that's the best way we can maybe describe it as human beings. The human intellect struggles awfully with this because of one simple fact. Now listen, this is what I've deduced um, through Scripture and even through experience. Man doesn't like to hand over control to anyone, including God, his creator. Man doesn't like to hand control over to anyone, including God, his creator. It's why we have so many issues with authority in this world. People don't like to hand over control. And the further you go down the chain of delegation the more watered down that idiot thinks about the authority above them. Oh, I'll submit to God, but I can't submit to you. But wait a minute. God delegated authority to me. So, you're like thrice removed from the, you know, the hierarchy. So I don't think I really want to. Prove yourself to me. Man doesn't like to hand over control to anyone. That's why there are so many authority issues in this world. And he doesn't like to hand over control to 
to God even, even though it's his creator. Meanwhile, the sanctified person in Christ Jesus lives a life that is pleasing to God because as Paul wrote in Romans 1.17, the righteous man shall live by what? Faith. You see the difference? God doesn't have to prove anything to you. He, he says, I am. By faith, and I will give you this faith, by faith you shall live in peace and comfort with contentedness. Again, the sanctified person lives by faith, as Paul wrote in Romans 17. Conversely, this person hands everything over to God. Conversely to the previous person, of course. This person hands everything over to God. Instead of trying to control God, they hand everything over to God. Is there not a more magnificent thing to see than to come across in the Christian ranks? than someone who obviously has handed over everything to God. I look in the mirror, I don't see that person. I'm a stubborn jackass, apparently. How about you? But when I see that thing in another person, and nobody's perfect at it, but you know what I'm talking about. When you see that surrender in a person unto Jesus Christ, unto God, it's beautiful. I don't know, I can't think of anything in this moment that's more beautiful than that. On, on, the, on the framework or on the, on the grounds of humanity itself. God, different story. But man surrendering, that miracle is so beautiful that man can actually surrender to God in that way, in a complete, with any abandon whatsoever, is absolutely beautiful. And because this person is living by faith, according to Hebrews 11.6, he is pleasing to God, his creator. We learned this on Sunday. Hebrews 11.6 up here on the board. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So God is very pleased when a person lives by faith, by that way. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Up here on the board, this is from Tuesday. Faith takes God at His word, and the man of faith doesn't lose his peace because his fleshly mind can't reconcile everything. In other words, we don't have a problem. We don't go home and suffer sleepless nights because we can't reconcile everything. Maybe it's in the Bible even. Maybe God says, like I've, I've intimated with you, a lot of people, and it, I, no offense, but it's the cockroach syndrome, right? If one person has that issue in their soul, a lot of people do, especially in a congregation. When I was teaching about election in the, in, the, in the, I don't want to say severity, but the staunchness of it that God alone saves, people started to stumble on the free will thing. And then the, the, the other corollary is that, well, then if, there's, if this is the way it is, then why should we even evangelize? And you see how it starts to snowball. But all three of those things are mandated and very, or very clearly stated in Holy Scripture. Whether or not we're able to reconcile those things with our puny little minds is not the issue at all. If God says this is the way it is, then you know what? By faith we say that's the way it is. If He says this is the way it is, then by faith we have to accept that. And if He says this is the way it is, and this is what I want you to do, with the knowledge of these two things, 
then you know what we need to do? We need to go do it. Because he's holy and omniscient and we're not. We don't know everything. And he says, that's good. That's exactly how I want it to be. So again, this capstone of sanctification, I'll call it for this evening, is called peace. You know that you've been sanctified when you have more peace in your life. That's the capstone of sanctification, that you have more peace in your life. And so speaking of peace, I want to just peruse a few passages for encouragement's sake. Go to Psalm 4.8. We're just going to read about peace. What does the Bible say about peace? And I just want you to read these with me for the sake of encouragement, because this is the capstone of sanctification. Psalm 4.8. Psalm 4, verse 8. <clears throat> In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Who doesn't feel safer now than they did when they were a kid? When you're a kid, you have to depend on flawed parents. And so there's all, and some of you say, oh man, my parents were a mess. Well, that's even worse, isn't it? But even with so-called good parents, you're still depending on the nature and ability of flawed parents. So the more you understand God and who He is and what He wants for you, the more peace you have, the more you dwell in safety. And that's why this is so meaningful. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. How about Psalm 34, 14? Psalm 34, verse 14. <clears throat> 34, 14. This echoes of what we just read with Zeteo. Depart from me evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. Uh, we seem to specialize in chaos, don't we? Dysfunction junction. Some of it call some of you might call that uh, normal. That when things sort of settle down and there's any peace in your life, you actually seek out more chaos because that's what you are familiar with. And the Bible says, seek peace and pursue it. And that's at the hand of doing what you're doing right now. How about Psalm 119, 165? You want your life to settle? Learn the Word of God. It's incredible how many iterations, I don't even know how many I've been through just in the last year, how many iterations go on in our souls where we depart from peace towards dysfunction junction again. Because God forbid anybody controls us, right? God forbid when we wake up in the morning, we're in a mood, we listen to God. 119, 165, those who love your law have what? Great peace. Amen? There you go. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. Jeez, is it really that simple? Yeah, it's really that simple. Learn the law and love it. God says, I've got all the directions for your life. Follow me, you're good. How about Isaiah 26, verse 3? Isaiah 26, verse 3. 
Isaiah 26, verse 3. Again, just, you know, just uh, perusing passages on peace for the sake of encouragement. Isaiah 26, verse 3 reads, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. How about John 16, 33? Go there. John 16, verse 33. John 16, 33. That was like a delayed response almost, wasn't it? People like were stuck. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Thought it'd get a little quicker to go into the New Testament. John 6, you guys are just dead, aren't you? You're like, <laughs> should have bought, should have handed out the bibs at the door. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Well, how does he speak to us now? We have what's called the Spirit of Christ, right? We're indwelled by him, the same person of the Godhead that inspired Holy Scripture. So this is the way he speaks to us. That's why it's appalling for anyone to say that we're not disciples of Christ, but that's another story. John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have what? Peace. That's the capstone. In the world you have tribulation. That's the converse. That's the flip side. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. How about Romans 8, 6? Romans 8, 6. Romans 8, verse 6. Romans 8, 6 reads, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Mind set on the flesh is death, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. How about Romans 15, 13? Romans 15, 13. Yeah, and the Spirit's just trying to encourage you. Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How about 1 Corinthians 14, 33? 1 Corinthians 14, 33. First Corinthians 14:33 Feels like I'm dragging you with a really flexible bungee cord right now. <laughs> like, whoa, come on. First Corinthians 14:33 For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. How about Philippians 4:7? Philippians 4 verse 7. Philippians 4, verse 7. For 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you feel safe? Remember we read that earlier in the Old Testament? You feel safe? Yeah. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How about Colossians 3.15? Colossians 3.15. When you're at peace, you feel like you're at home, right? I mean, even in a natural sense, isn't it? For, for most of you who have a, a, a you know, home um, to go to, whether it's a home or pot, it doesn't matter, but a place to go to, isn't there sort of your place of peace? You come home and you're like, ah, oh, the world's out there. I can come in and close the doors. This is my place of peace. Well, this is what it's like to come home to God. Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And then one more. How about 2 Thessalonians 3.16, to bring in the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus Christ even, 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. May the Lord... Do you see that? He's the master, the ruler of peace itself. The Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. We could go on and on for much longer, but suffice to say that peace is the capstone element of sanctification in Christ Jesus. And I'm not discounting love, of course, in any way, but I hope you know what I'm saying, that peace is the capstone element of sanctification in Christ Jesus. How do we get there? Where does this peace come from? One word, grace. And so this is where it gets... Messy, nice and pure up until now, right? Ah, it's like, yes, this is pure, pure word, pure doctrine from the word of God. This is wonderful. It's, it's great to hear about peace. And then we have to deal with the perversions, the potholes, the pitfalls, um, the things that are out there. Because we don't just exist inside of these four walls. We don't get to, you know, uh, Scotty beam me up to home, to other place of peace, and we skip everything in between. No, we, we traverse this world that has a God that is completely against our God. Where does this peace come from? Grace. So thinking about this, if these things are true, then it makes perfect sense that grace, and so often love, is the target of Satan in the kingdom of darkness. It makes perfect sense that if you receive peace by grace, then it makes perfect sense that grace is the target of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. If he and his cronies can get you to believe the lies about God's grace, and as I've taught you, that might start with a redefinition or a bogus definition. You know, the world's version of grace and even love is very different than the one we find in the Bible. If we don't read our Bibles, if we don't invest in our education, then we do like every other so-called Christian does in this world. We just make stuff up. And because we can only make up stuff from bits and pieces like Lego blocks that we've gotten from the world, we construct our, our terminology and our definitions for grace and love from those perverted elements, and we end up with a perverted definition. We have to go to the Word of God. We have to go, we have to zeteo, we have to seek diligently with a purpose, 
The Bible, we just saw that. We have to pursue peace even. And that sort of shrinks it all into view. So if these things are true, it makes perfect sense that Satan's going to attack grace. And if he and his cronies can lie to you about God's grace, like redefine the term or what have you, then he's inflicted grave injury to your precious soul. Satanic grace is reasonable. Meaning even an unbeliever can understand it. Let me repeat that. Satanic grace is indeed reasonable. Even an unbeliever can understand it. However, biblical grace is as follows, and this came up now for the third time. Grace in the Bible leaves us speechless. So allow me to wax philosophical for a moment. Consider this. If grace doesn't leave you speechless, if the God of grace doesn't leave you speechless whenever you think of him, um, where does it leave you? If you're not speechless in the face of grace, I'm talking about biblical grace, where does that leave you? I suppose it leaves you dangerously close to where Satan wants you to be. Confused about God himself. And this is why I made that emphasis up front in the message that a lot of people don't even know who God is, which is why they're confused about something so fundamental like his grace. They only hear maybe through experience, through religion, they only hear about the wrath of God. They've not heard about the grace. Or they've only heard of some lopsided version of grace that's dangerously close to a world definition where there's no justice involved. It's just, an, you know, a God who produces a bunch of entitled brats, basically. And so all these perversions are floating around and people end up confused about God, His nature, His character, His will, His love. Anytime these things are lost on us, we venture outside of God's grace experientially. We lose it. We lose the benefits of it. We lose the capstone of it, which is peace. For even the perspective on grace is a grace gift. This is the greater grace from James 4.6, the Spirit highlighted last time. So, our anchor principle, as we prepare to close out this series titled The Deceitfulness of Sin, has been this very simple pivot point. This is where we've come back to, sort of like the, I don't want to call it the maypole, but you know what I'm saying. We just come back to this thing all the time. We venture out, we discover some new things, we learn some new uh, vantage points into Holy Scripture. But at the end of the day, sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. And so we cannot be deceived about that very thing. If God wants us to know Him, then you know what? That's our goal. So as a reminder, if sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, what is God's will? I mean the net-net, if we're going to you know, shrink 
this down to a summary for the sake of emerging out of this mind shaft. What is God's will? I mean, if that's the shrunken version of what sin is, then what's God's will? Well, we have it in Holy Scripture up here on the board, 1 Timothy 2.4. This is God's will. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's His will. And if you know anything about the Bible, if you've been reading your Bible, you know that literally that is the purpose of the Bible. I think it was DJ and I had this discussion <clears throat> on Sunday. I now read the Bible. I'm not kidding you. The only thing I ever think about is the Gospel. No kidding. Literally everything I read comes back to one thing. God's plan to save human beings. Literally, that is what I read every time I read the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, I don't care if it's Genesis, Revelation, it doesn't matter. That's what I see now. It's literally that simple. It's the Gospel. This whole thing is about the Gospel. Hello? That's literally what he says. This is my intention. <laughs> it's why I became a man. <laughs> it's why it's proved to you in the Old Testament that you can't measure up to the law. Because I'm perfect and you're not. So stop questioning me. Repent. Everything is, the, everything is the gospel. That's literally what God wants us to know. He says, I want everybody to be saved. That's his will. And come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, Paul wrote this in order to establish God's perspective on his dealings with mankind's plight and his need for salvation. He also wrote about false teachers teaching the doctrines of demons so that God's will would be thwarted. Go to 2 Timothy 3.6. 2 Timothy 3.6. If it were only that pure, if sin is the departure from God's will, and we have God's will in a nutshell, what is Satan going to do? Because that can't happen on the board without grace. 2 Timothy 3.6. For among them... Teach, uh, false teachers in view, teachers who teach the doctrines of demons. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of what? The truth. That person lives a life essentially of exhaustion. But they are not meeting, what do we say? It literally is the same language, isn't it? His desire is that all come to the knowledge of the truth. What does that say? In 2 Timothy, same author, always learning in what? Never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Same language, isn't it? Well, can't you just see Satan like this greasy, like seducer type grease ball? Do you know what I'm getting at? Like, here's God's will to come to the knowledge of the truth. And here's Satan saying, I'm going to do everything I can to seduce these same people that God's will is upon so that they never come to the knowledge of the truth. And I'm going to be a sleaze about it. I have no scruples whatsoever. That's, what you, that's that scene. Th these guys are gross. This scene is gross. If you take it at face value, this is... These are false teachers going into homes. And remember, the churches, this isn't necessarily a church, this is an American church, right? Churches back in the day were homes, the woods, caves, 
Wherever their people were gathered together, you don't need this for a church. We call it a church, but it's not necessary. It's great, but it's not strictly necessary. These people went right into people's homes and seduced people away from the objective of God right there on the board. So Paul uses the exact same language to make this statement, this cautionary tale, if you would. And so if it can happen to those people, it can happen to any one of us. We're all weak, right? Looking at you right now, I pray that nothing crazy goes on in your life because you're probably going to fail. You just look beat up. You don't look like you have much energy left. Do you know what I'm saying? And so as a shepherd, that kind of piques its attention, but whatever. I hope you see the point the Spirit's making here. Paul's describing how Satan in the kingdom of darkness works against God's basic will for mankind. Same language even. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul saw it. I see it today. Uh, It's grotesque. Um, I, I see the seduction going on in this world. I see people, Satan using all kinds of agencies for this very purpose. And it's always, uh, I don't want to get into it. But he's, it's, it's so obvious. I'll leave it at that. The only way that folks like you and I won't come to the knowledge of the truth is if we believe lies. The greatest lie of all or the greatest lies of all, are regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew of this reality, and also that throughout human history we'd be plagued with lies and liars. Lies and liars. So when it comes to the gospel, a large portion of liars are those who even proclaim saving faith, but are merely hedging a bet, or even worse, knowingly playing a game. Hence the reason why Jesus spoke the parable of parables. I'll give you that as homework because we're out of time. Joey, you're right. We're not done yet. It's going to be part 68. I cannot believe it. Cannot believe it. This is how it goes. He humbles us, right? Can use our own children. So the gospel is the greatest target of all. It's why even in the Bible, the Bible calls it the gospel of grace. It's not a different gospel like some morons teach. It's not Paul's gospel. It's a new gospel. No. If you don't see grace in the Old Testament, you are, I don't know what you're reading. I don't know what you're reading. It's not a new gospel, but it is the gospel. And it is the gospel of grace. And so it makes total sense that Satan and the kingdom of darkness are going to attack grace. Because if he can undermine grace then he can undermine the gospel. And he can even disturb a a true believer. This I'm convinced of. (coughs) He can even disturb a true believer and sow a little doubt in there. And so this is why we do this thing. We invest in our education um, because that's what God wants out of us so that we can come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen? All right, we'll continue on Sunday. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of studying your word here this evening. We just ask for your blessings as we take this out to back to our places of peace, Father. 
our homes, places where we can fellowship once again with the Word and then outbound to the world that's just decaying, Father. We just ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.